Merry Christmas, Hope! It is so good to be with you. It's been a long time coming. It's been two years since we've been able to have a candlelight Christmas Eve service celebrating the birth of Jesus together in person. Can we give God praise for that? That's awesome. Two years. A lot has happened in two years. Think about all the places that you've gone in the last two years. Think about all the places maybe you haven't been able to go in the last two years. I want to tell you this. We tell it to you all the time, and we mean it. I especially want to say it tonight. This place, we believe it's no accident that you're here. We have been praying for you. We're excited to worship with you. So excited about God encountering you tonight. So excited about what God could do through your life. So excited about you seeing God. What would it be like to see God? To be struck with that kind of awe, that kind of glory. When was the last time you saw something that struck you, that moved you? that changed you. Think about it like this. When was the last time that you heard a song so beautiful that your soul was stirred? Did you feel that during opening worship today? I did. Leaves you speechless. You're engaged. Your heart is moving with the beat of the drum. What about when you see something so majestic, like an Iowa sunset, taking uh, something like that, taking something like that in? what, What does that do to you? When it's way too beautiful that your words just can't do it justice, can it? What about when you see a loved one who accomplishes something? You're so proud of them. I love this little guy. You ever been so proud of someone that you just don't even know what to say? You're seeing something and it strikes you. What about when your favorite cyclone does something in live action that you never believed that could happen in your own mind, right? Leaves you speechless. You start storming onto the field. You don't know why, but you just knew it. I'm thinking about some of those beautiful things that I've seen in my life that have struck me. The most beautiful experience of my life was on my wedding day and I saw my wife. I was so struck. It's not just because I think she's physically beautiful, but also because I just saw her wholeness, her existence, her entire presence. It was beautiful and it struck me and I lost control. I mean, seriously, I started to laugh. I started to cry. I looked crazy, right? And I looked nuts. What do you do when you see something that strikes you? You can go to the next slide. I don't want to see my face like that anymore. (laughs) What do you do? About 2,000 years ago, Mary and Joseph and some shepherds, they looked down in a manger and they saw something that struck them. And it was the most beautiful sight that anyone's ever seen. It says this in Colossians chapter 2. I never thought of this as a Christmas verse, but I think it is. It says, "For for in Christ lives the fullness of God in a human body. There in the manger, as Mary and Joseph and the shepherds looked down at him, they saw the fullness of God and it struck them. It moved them. They could never be the same. They saw what their heart was truly wanting. They saw what their heart always needed. What is it that you're hoping to see this year? What is it that you're wanting? What is it that you think that you have to have in your life these days? Maybe you don't think so long-term, but think short-term. What is it that you're hoping is waiting for you under the tree when you get home or tomorrow morning? When I was younger, uh, there was just kind of like an inside ongoing joke in my family that I would say the same thing every single Christmas. No matter what gift I got, no matter what present I was opening, whoever it was from, I don't know who I learned this from, but I would always say, oh, it's what I always wanted. It didn't matter. I'd open up the present, I'd see it. It's what I always wanted. Sometimes it was very easy for me to say that. For example, when I got the Razor scooter that I always wanted, it's what I always wanted! 
when my brother and I got the PlayStation, it's what we always wanted. When I was seven and I got a multicolored Afghan quilt from my great grandmother Danielson, it's what I always wanted. Like, do you even know me? Like, what am I gonna do with this? It's what I always wanted. You know what's funny about that? The Razor scooter went away in a garage sale a long time ago. PlayStation hasn't turned on for probably 15 years. But I still have this. I guess that's what I always wanted. Sometimes we, we don't really know what we want. Like we know what we desire, we know what looks attractive, we know it's gonna get us through the moment, but man, sometimes we're a little bit out of touch with our souls, with our hearts. I mean, our minds see things and they're attracted to things and they want those things, but our soul, our heart, it cries out for something. So what is it? What is it that you always wanted? So Forbes magazine put out a survey to a thousand of their subscribers and they asked, what is it that you want in your life? Like a big existential question. And I was pretty impressed because people didn't answer in a superficial way. Instead, they answered how you would hope that they'd answer. Among the top three answers, one of them was, what I always want, what I just want to see in my life is that I'm important. It's that my life has significance that I matter. I want to tell you this, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be important. There's nothing wrong with wanting your life to matter. God thinks you matter. God thinks your life is important. The scriptures, it tells us this in Ephesians chapter two. It says, we are God's masterpiece. We turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a masterpiece. No, come on, turn to the person next to you again and say it like you really believe it this time. I'm a masterpiece. Now, turn to another person next to you and say, you're a masterpiece too. Because God says you are. You are God's masterpiece. God created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that God planned for us long ago. According to God, you are important. And for so very long, God has decided you're going to do important things. Your life is going to matter. And that's refreshing, isn't it? I mean, if God says it, what a confidence booster. When you think of important people, what do you think about? When you think about people that matter, what do you think about? Who comes to your mind? Around the time that Jesus was born, if you would have asked anybody in the Roman Empire, who is the most important person in the world? Every single one of them would have said Caesar Augustus, hands down. The emperor of Rome. This guy had it all. He was a ruler, he was a king, he lived in a palace, he had all the security, he had everything. When somebody thought, what is it that I wanna see in my life? What is it that I always wanted? What is it that would strike me? They'd look at Caesar and be like, that guy has it all. I see it, he's got it. Caesar Augustus, he's got what they always wanted. This is the guy who millions of people would listen to. If he said one thing, an entire portion of the earth would respond. So we read at the beginning of the Christmas story in Luke, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, there were lots of different reasons why he might take a census. Some of them were probably for vain reasons. He'd like to show the world just how powerful he is, how many people were waiting for his commands just to respond, sitting, just waiting for him to say, you have to do this. And of course, they had to do it because he was important. 
When they saw this guy, they saw someone who mattered. Among the millions of people who would listen to Caesar, there were two, young, poor, maybe scared, Jewish people. Their names were Mary and Joseph. Maybe you've heard of them. They're pretty big in the Christmas story. It's easy for us to think of them as big characters now. They're important, they matter. But in those days, they, they didn't matter to a whole lot of people. They weren't considered very important. Joseph was, a town, was from a town called Bethlehem. And we think Bethlehem is such this great, majestic, wonderful place because we think, well, that's where Jesus was born. But back in those days, Bethlehem had about a couple hundred people living there, maybe. It's a podunk town. There's nothing special about it. Think Nebraska, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I just offended someone. I, I don't know. I don't know. We have Hawkeye fans in the room, so I couldn't, you know, say Iowa City. <laughs> I don't believe that. I have family in Iowa City. But Joseph lived somewhere that really didn't matter. It wasn't important. At least that's where his family was from. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem. That's where his ancestry was from. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged and was now expecting a child. When Caesar said, there's going to be a census, these people had to return to their ancestors' hometowns and they would be counted there. These two insignificant, seemingly unimportant people living under the reign of who seemed to be the most important person in the entire world. You want to see how unimportant Mary and Joseph were? how unimportant Mary's pregnancy was to everyone around them. When they show up to Bethlehem and they see this very pregnant Mary, people aren't running to her aid, but instead it says that she gave birth to Jesus, wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals because there was no lodging available for them. There was never any room for Jesus. People didn't make space for him because he wasn't important. He didn't matter to them. There's nothing significant about this guy, the stepson of the carpenter, the son of Mary. God entered the world in a seemingly meaningless situation, in circumstances that would say, those people don't matter to the important people in the world, not to people like Caesar. Are you seeing this juxtaposition, the comparison in the book of Luke? You've got Caesar who's sitting in the security and comfort of the palace. Meanwhile, you've got God in the flesh being born into trauma. His parents are searching for a place to stay, and so they stay in what was probably either a cave, a basement, or a shack out back where oftentimes people would keep animals. Insignificant, unimportant. I mean, Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, there was nothing really great about him. And you know this because when he showed back up to his hometown where his family was from, they were like, oh, it's Joey, our guy, the carpenter, he's back. It was, who are you? They didn't have a place for him. It seemed unimportant. And that has to baffle us. I wonder if for over 2,000 years, we've been hearing this story over and over and over again. And so we've kind of become unaware of just how crazy this is. Baby God is born and lays down in a feeding trough for animals. The fullness of God lays down in this human infant body, able to be held by another person. Like, what? This is crazy. Why would God do that? Why would God show up in such an unimportant way, in such an insignificant way? Why wouldn't he show up like Caesar? At the snap of his finger, millions of people would respond. 
No, God doesn't use his power to control people, but instead God uses his power to win people, to love people, to save people, to show people that they matter, to show people that they're important, to show people that they are significant. Do you want to feel important? Do you want to feel like your life matters? See how the creator of the universe comes into your life in the most dramatic and traumatic ways. God came into the world into a seemingly unimportant place. And in doing so, in knowing what it's like to be misunderstood, he understands what it's like for people to look at him and say, you don't matter. You're not important. From his very birth, Jesus was marginalized, misunderstood, and left out. He knows what it's like for someone to look at him and say, you don't matter. Anybody ever told you that before? You ever felt left out? Growing up, my family and I, we went to NASCAR races. Uh, some of you know that I'm a, I'm a huge NASCAR fan. Growing up, like Jeff Gordon and the Rainbow Warriors were everything to us. It made no sense. A lot of kids go with their parents like national parks or baseball games or Disney World. We went to stock car races. <laughs> My parents are from the north side of Chicago. There are no NASCAR fans on the north side of Chicago. I, how did this happen? But we'd go. And uh, especially when I was younger, if you had a ticket to the Speedway, you could go almost anywhere. You could go in the grandstands. You could go out uh, where the sales are, take place. You'd go on the track. You could go in the pits. But eventually, you'd get to a gate. And at the gate, you had to stop. You weren't allowed to cross that point unless you were important, unless you mattered. Because on the other side of the gate were the drivers. And we would drive hundreds of miles just to get to this gate. And in the distance, I might just barely catch a glimpse of Jeff Gordon or Dale Earnhardt or Bobby Labonte or Tony Stewart. I mean, I might actually catch a glimpse of them in the flesh. I mean, they wouldn't notice me, but I saw them. And as I reflect on that, I realize I wasn't important, was I? I mean, like, to a certain extent I was. I could go different places, but there was a point that I could not go. And around the time that Jesus was born, the people who followed God, the people who were called God's people, I wonder if they started to feel like God was on the other side of a gate and they just weren't important enough. They weren't special enough. They weren't holy enough. Holy is a fancy word, isn't it? It's a word that gets thrown around in churches a lot. It's very religious. But the Bible has a very simple definition for the word holy. It simply means something that God has set apart. And sometimes when we hear that off the beginning, we say that's discouraging because I feel like the least set apart person in the world. I feel so ordinary. I feel so, uh, I feel so boring. I feel like there's nothing holy about me. I belong on this side of the gate. People had started to believe that God belonged on another side of a gate and, and they couldn't get there. Their traditions uh, spoke of this. There was a temple in Jerusalem that uh, the Jewish people saw as essentially the center of their universe. The temple had different layers, and on the very inside of the, of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the most set-apart place. And in the Holy of Holies, it looked, as we think, it probably looked about like this. In the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain that was probably about 30 feet tall, and inches thick, were the most treasured items in their faith. The Ark of the Covenant, all of the different things that represented God's presence. 
And only the holiest were allowed to go into that space. Only the set apart, only the people who were really special. The Bible tells us that only the highest priest could go into that space and could only enter that space once a year. They had that kind of awe and reverence for God's presence. You didn't belong in God's presence. God was too good. God was too holy. God was too set apart. And so you would stand on the other side of the curtain. Imagine it like this. This curtain, I don't know about how tall it is. Maybe it's getting close to about 30 feet by the top there where I can see. And there's that point. I can't go past that. Maybe I can catch glimpses of God. Maybe I would travel to the ends of the earth just to have a spiritual experience. But I don't know about God actually entering my life. Does anybody feel like God's distant? Does anybody feel like they've been told that there's a gate that they can only get up to? And at that point, you just have to stop. You don't belong on the side where important people go. This is what the Jewish people believed. They had this awe and they had this reverence. They didn't believe that they belonged in God's presence because think about it. Think about the stories that they heard about God throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the part of the Bible that's written before Jesus was born. This is the God who spoke the universe into creation. This is the God who led his people out of Egypt from Pharaoh's hand. This is the God who split the Red Sea. This is the God who raised people to life through prophets. This is the God who, who, who put fire on the tongues of those prophets. This is the God who cast judgment on evil. This is the God who is in control of the entire universe. This is God. What would it be like to stand in his presence? It's terrifying. I don't belong in that space. I'm not set apart, I'm not different, I'm not unique, I'm not special, I'm not holy. There's a story in the book of Exodus where Moses wants to see God. He wants to have that striking experience. God tells Moses, you can't see my face because you wouldn't be able to take it. I, I, I'm too majestic, I'm, I'm too perfect. You wouldn't be able to bear the weight of it. So instead, Moses just sees God's backside. But then when Moses comes down from the mountain, Moses' face is shining. Like just from seeing God's backside, Moses is shining. And maybe this is a point where you're like, okay, the Bible lost me there. That's crazy, right? Like, okay, can't be in God's presence, faces shining. But don't you know what it's like to be struck by beauty? I mean, when you hear a song, when you see someone you love, when you're moved by something you didn't think was possible, what happens to you? When you see something beautiful, something stops inside of you. Maybe something ignites inside of you, but something happens inside of you. When we see beauty, something happens. Now imagine that you are seeing the creator, the source of every beautiful thing that has ever existed. Nothing that is beautiful and good has not come from God, it tells us in James chapter 1. You are looking in the face of the one who created everything beautiful. Is it so hard to think that being in the presence of that God might be a little terrifying? What would you do? Could you handle it? According to the Bible, Moses couldn't. So what, what happened? How did we get that majestic God who spoke creation into existence just from the breath of his lungs, who split the Red Sea, who led God's people from Pharaoh's hand? who sent judgment down on evil, who spoke prophecies, who fulfilled promises, who raised the dead to life. How in the world does that God become as approachable as a baby? How in the world does that God show up to shepherds? 
how in the world does that God look us in the face today and we can take it? We, like, we don't, we don't glow, right? Like, right? And go to those NASCAR races and uh, growing up, time after time, week after week, race after race, we'd get to the gate and we couldn't go anywhere else. Like, we just had to stop there. Some of you know this, 20 years later, my brother now works for NASCAR. He's a producer with NASCAR and Fox Sports and NBC Sports. And part of his job as a really, really gifted producer is he gets to hang out with NASCAR drivers uh, and professional baseball players and uh, NCAA football athletes and like, get close with them and connect with them and talk to these people who matter, people who are important, like people who I watch. And I'm like, those people, I see them and they blow me away with the things that they can do. My brother, after he started working for NASCAR and hanging out with some of these people, he invited me to go to a race with him. And so, of course, we go to all the different places, the grandstands, where the sales are, on the track, and then we get to the gate. And just out of habit, that's where I stop. I don't go past that place. I'm not, I'm not important. I'm not special. I'm not set apart. Like, that's where the drivers are. My brother, though, when we get to the gate, he doesn't stop. And he pauses. He looks at me. What are you doing? I'm like, this is where we stop. But John has this nifty little pass now. And he looks at the security guard and he says, he's with me. And I'm just like, I'm now walking through the Red Sea is what I feel like. Like, it's been opened up before me. I'm free from Pharaoh's torture is what it feels like. I'm like, my goodness, I'm free. I matter. I'm significant. Because someone who is considered important, someone who mattered, looked at me and said that I mattered, that I was important. It's not that I had changed, but someone that I was with who is important, he said I was important too. I think that's what's happening at Christmas. Like, did God change? I don't think God changed. I think that we just started to see God for who God really is. God let us have that access. There were shepherds. You heard about this in the Bible reading tonight, shepherds. We hear shepherds and, and um, we sometimes think like poetic things. We, we think soft and gentle. Shepherds were complicated. From what we understand historically, like they probably had the best intentions. They just wanted to protect their sheep but they were rough around the edges. There was nothing holy about them. The only thing set apart about shepherds is that they were set apart from society because they weren't really allowed to live within the city gates. Instead, they would stay out with their sheep and they'd keep watch over their sheep to make sure that other shepherds weren't stealing their sheep. Inside the town, they didn't matter. They weren't significant so much that their testimonies didn't count in court. These were the shepherds. They didn't matter. And yet God chooses to show up to them is that an angel appears to them. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. And you wonder, did God change? Did God change his mind? Is he contradicting himself? What's happening here? How in the world did we go from the God who created the world through the breath of his lungs, who split the Red Sea, who cast judgment on, on, on evil forces, who raised the dead back to life? I mean, my goodness, how do we go from that to a God who approaches in, unimportant, insignificant people like shepherds? And the shepherds, they grew up in the Jewish society. They had heard these stories. They knew about that God. And all of a sudden, this God is looking at them face to face through these angels, and they don't know what to do. I mean, naturally, it tells us that they were terrified, but the angel reassures them, don't be afraid. 
You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be scared. You can approach me. I think you're important. You don't have to be afraid because I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. If you're ever wondering, like, what's the point of Christmas? What's happening in Christmas? This is what's happening in Christmas. There is good news of great joy for all people. Would you go ahead and say good news? Now say great joy. joy. Now say all people. people. Go ahead and say it again. Good news. news. Great joy. joy. All people. people. Now say I'm all people. people. And look at the person next to you say, you're all people too. All of a sudden, God is looking at people, and the first time we're hearing it, we're being struck in a new way. We are seeing God, and God is saying, you are important. You matter. We say this all the time. I want my life to have significance. I want my life to have meaning. I want to be important, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be important, but where are we going to for our importance? Are we going to things that we don't actually think are that important? Are we going to things that we know are not going to last us? Or would we maybe go to the God who is the most important being in the entire universe who looks at you and says, I think you're important. I think you matter. I think you have significance. I think you're holy. I've set you apart. The God of the universe. The one who created existence from his breath you find that when you look at him, the most striking thing is that he looks back at you. He's telling you, don't be afraid. I've got good news for you. It is to bring you great joy, and it is for every single person. And what happens inside of you in that moment? Well, the shepherds, they were struck, you know, they were moved. They show up to that famous scene. It tells us that when they showed up, sure enough, they saw the baby lying in the manger and they told everybody about what happened because they received the good news. They experienced the great joy. They were struck by what they saw. Good news, great joy, all people. It's only natural to praise the things that we love the most in this world. It's only natural my goodness, I love my wife. And that's why I stand in front of you and I say, you wouldn't believe what I was experiencing on our wedding day. You listen to a song and it moves you and it changes you. You just immediately, you share it on social media. You want somebody else to listen to it. You get great news about your new job. You want to share it with everybody. Hey, I got to tell you this. It's only natural. The things that we care about, the things that move us, the things that strike us, we share it with the people around us. And so it was with the shepherds. I have to tell people about this. If you want to know, is your faith being ignited? Like, how is my faith doing, right? And I think it's only appropriate to ask that in certain situations. It's more important just to ask God, God, do you think I'm important? Yes, you think I'm important. You love me. Uh, You died for me. You, You saved me. Good. But sometimes it's good to ask that question about ourselves too. How is my faith? I believe that the people with the healthiest faith are the ones who are talking about their faith in their word and in their deed. They don't walk away from the manger the same way. What they saw struck them. It changed them. It moved them. We hear about what they said, but I wonder what they did. How did it change their life after they looked down at the manger and they saw the fullness of God? The God that they heard stories about but never dared to see, never dared to look at called this entire service this year, Come and See, because we want you to come and see. 
We're not pointing you to us. We're not pointing you to a person. We're not pointing you to a song. We're not pointing you to a love interest. We're not pointing you to a job, a passion. We're not pointing you to any of that. We're pointing you to the fullness of God that showed up in a manger. Come and see this God who's humble, who is vulnerable, vulnerable enough to become so small that he would be held by another person. Come and see this God. And what do you experience? You experience good news. You receive this good news. And I've got good news for you. There's a difference between good news and good instruction. So many of us are living with really good instruction, aren't we? And good instructions tell you how to live, but good news tells you you get to live. You are important. You don't have to earn significance. God showed up in your life. God thought you were important enough to show up in this world and become like you. It's good news, not just good instruction. It fills you with great joy. It strikes you. It moves you. There's this praise. There's this movement. There's this, there, there, there's this sudden change inside of you. I have to glorify this. And then finally, it's, it's not just for me. It's for all people. And so I was standing there, now on the other side of the gate, right? Like, you feel really, really good about it, but if you're even half human with half a heart, you turn around and you see all the people standing on the side of the gate that you used to stand on. And if you just have a little bit of a heart, you start to break. Because you think, oh no, now I'm an elitist. Nobody wants to be that. At least people with hearts, right? And so I'm like, kind of like, okay, this is a little embarrassing. This is a little awkward. There were drivers uh, that were starting to walk our way, and, and this is my opportunity. Like, I could go meet Jeff Gordon right now. And, I, and for the record, I did. <laughs> He's short. Would you believe it? He comes up like here on me. It's nuts. <laughs> but as we're standing there in the gate, there's this little boy off to my right, and he's between my brother and me. And he's wearing what a lot of little boys wear to NASCAR races. He's wearing a Dale Earnhardt Jr. hat, 88. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. is about 100 feet away, and he's walking toward us. This little boy is erupting. Junior! It's kind of like they always shout at races. Junior, you got to save me, Junior! I wonder how far he traveled. It's funny, isn't it? I think it was him. I just can't know. This little boy, I wonder how far he traveled and like he got so close, but then it's so disappointing when you realize that the thing that you've traveled hundreds of miles for, the thing that you've invested years of your life in, the person that you just wanted to accept you, you went so far to do it, you get to the gate and they don't notice you. And there's like this important thing that you admire but you don't really know. In the book of Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is speaking to a crowd of people. And he looks at an altar that they have and it says, to an unknown God. He says, you worship an unknown God. But let me tell you this, the God that you don't know, well, that's the God I'm talking about. And you can know him. And you can see him. And you can be moved by him. You can be saved by him. You can be loved by him and you already matter to him. Let me tell you about a God I know. This boy is shouting, Junior! My brother 
squats down, gets to his eye level. He goes, hey, are you a junior fan? He's like, oh yeah, I love Dale Earnhardt Jr. He's going on and on. He's like telling him like race stats, right? And my brother goes, I know him. I know him. Can I tell you about him? He's really kind. He's funny. He's quiet a lot. He is. Do you want to meet him? And the boy grabs the gate and he starts shaking it. Do I want to meet him? Do I want to meet Junior? Do I want to meet Junior? Yes! My brother looks at the security guard and he says, he's with me. And seeing this little boy meet Dale Earnhardt Jr. was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. I was struck. I was moved. Listen, it's not good news if it's not good news for all of us. The joy doesn't last if we don't all get to be a part of it. This is for all people. Every single one of us. Every single one of us are invited to look our creator in the face. Yes, our creator in the face who has veiled himself in the flesh of Christ. The God who created the universe from the breath of his lungs. The God who led his people from Pharaoh's hand. The God who split the Red Sea. The God who spoke with fire from the prophet's mouths. The God who rose people from the dead. The God who cast judgment on the evil forces of this world. This is the God with the utmost significance and the utmost importance. And he says, you can look at me and you will see that I look at you with love. And my love gives you significance, eternal significance. I just want to make sure I make this clear tonight. Because a lot of us, when we get lost in some of this Christmas stuff, like, I mean, I don't know, Christmas, like the whole incarnation thing, like God had to become human. Why couldn't God just stay up there on the other side of the gate, right? The other side of the curtain. Wasn't it comfortable there? Why would God become human? Like, why would God, get back to that question. Why would God show up in such an unimportant way with people who just didn't matter? Why would God do it? Why would he show up in that place? It just doesn't make sense to me. I might believe in this upper being, this spiritual power that might have some sort of force over the universe, but come on, get real. God showing up as a baby? As a single cell. Why would he do it? My mom would drive us to school when I was a kid and she'd always have Paul Harvey on the radio. If you don't know who Paul Harvey is, ask someone who's 55 or ask someone with parents who are over 55. <laughs> Paul Harvey, good day. Every Christmas, Paul Harvey would read a story that addressed that question. Why would God do it? He would read, the man I'm about to tell you about is not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other people. 
but it just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff that the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense. Why would the infinite God, creator of everything beautiful in the universe, become human, become vulnerable, become small? He was too honest to pretend otherwise. Just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, look, I'm sorry to distress you, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. To be honest, he would have felt like a hypocrite. He'd much rather just stay home. He'd wait up for them. So he stayed home and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. And he went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Christmas doesn't really look like that anymore, right? It's like 55 degrees outside. <laughs> Minutes later, <laughs> startled by a thudding sound. <laughs> then another. <laughs> and another. At first he thought, someone must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddling outside, miserably in the snow. They'd been caught up in the storm, and despite their desperate search for shelter, they were stuck. They tried to fly through his large landscape window. That's what he heard when he heard the thudding sound. Couldn't let these poor creatures just lie there and freeze? I mean, my goodness, he's a decent man. A lot of us are decent. He remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. He thought, well, that, that would provide them warm shelter. All he'd have to do is direct the birds into the shelter. So quickly he put on, he put on a coat and boots and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide. He turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. Surely the light will draw them in. This is so obvious. I've made a way for you birds, but the birds would not go in the barn. He figured that food would entice him, right? He hurried back to the house and fetched some crumbs. He sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. I'm making it obvious, but to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds continued to flap around helplessly. He tried catching them, but he couldn't. He tried shooing them into the barn, walking around them, waving his arms, looking like a fool to his neighbors, but instead they scattered in every direction. Well, now he's ridiculous. Now he starts to chirp. Now he starts to scream. Now he starts to flap his wings harder. Now it's as if he's trying to fly. Now it's as if he's trying to be like a bird. And that's when he realized they were afraid of him. To them, I'm a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way, some way that they can know, that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. How? Any movie made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just wouldn't follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. He thought to himself, but if only I could become a bird and mingle with them and speak their language, I could just tell him, don't be afraid. I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn.
that I'd have to be one of them so they could see me, so they could hear me, so they could understand me. At just that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. He stood there, listening to the bells, and he sank to his knees, and he began to cry. Why did God do it? It's crazy for a man to become a bird. It's much crazier for God to become a human. But he did it. Because you matter to him. Because to him you are important. And he'd become a baby. The fullness of his entire spirit would be a baby in a manger. Run to him. See him. Be struck by his beauty. And never be the same.
Jesus. We will name him Jesus. I must go. People must know. People must know. People must know.